Rockers. Welcome to Hoosier Illusion, hosted by me, Neil Tafflinger, and Ryan J. Downey, two grown-up hardcore punks, longtime journalists, and longtime friends born and bred in Indianapolis, Indiana. After growing apart, we're reuniting to talk about who we were, who we are, and where we're going. Follow along as we navigate the rugged terrain of our mental landscapes, littered with pop culture, subculture, and the odd reference to Johnny Ringo, James Dean, Axl Rose, and other notable Hoosiers. Welcome to Hoosier Illusion. I'm Neil, one of your hosts. The um, other host is... I'm Ryan Downey. I'm the other host. And today we're going to talk about animal rights, 1990s style. Hands off the animals, bro. This is... Uh, we're, we're bringing it back to Tofuti and sad nutritional yeast mac and cheese <laughs> and the days of not having a million different meat alternatives to choose from uh, at every grocery store in every mid-sized city and larger in North America. The days of warm soy milk housed on the crooked shelf of an old house turned into a health food store by hippies <laughs> the days oh, of God. the days of having arguments with other vegans about you know this candy bar they just added a line on the back of it that says you know while this candy bar is vegan it was prepared in a facility that also prepares things with milk and eggs and people going can't buy that anymore and people going yes you still can and that actually be you know these fundamentalist orthodox uh, arguments, which I would imagine still persist to this day, but I am I am happily free from them for the most part. Yeah, where where every eating experience with other people was ruined by vegans asking you if the thing you're putting in your mouth was in fact vegan. Yeah, I enjoyed that. I have a vivid memory of uh, of someone who I'm much better friends with now. Uh, but if someone asking me once if my shoes were vegan and me just being like, are we, are we still having this conversation? <laughs> and this, and this was like 1998 or something. Um, so, so yeah. this episode is, is called fur free Friday in honor of, uh, what used to be the most important holiday on my calendar. I don't know about you, but, uh, fur free Friday for several years was, was a pretty big aspect of my life. Uh, and, on one occasion involved me getting arrested, but I wanted to talk to you because you are, you are OG compared to me on the, the uh, tip. So uh, let's talk about into, we've touched on it a little bit, but first of all, here's the devil's night, my new favorite holiday. Yep. Okay. So let's say this right from the outset. We have differing views on this presently. And from both our prior incarnations of ourselves to some extent and from one another. So anyone who's listening to this, who's like, 
oh, great, I'm going to listen to two vegans blather on about veganism. That is not what this episode is going to be and not what you are listening to. So bear with us as you travel on this plant-based journey with us. Uh, my experience with the animal liberation movement and ideology goes all the way back to fifth grade and my best friend in elementary school, Guillen Bentley, his family were, his parents were sort of aging hippies and they're, you know, him, his mom and dad and sister were all vegetarians. And in 1985, Indiana, that was about as foreign of a concept as you can imagine. And it would really only be aging hippies who would adopt a vegetarian lifestyle. Uh, it was at their home where I was first introduced to the idea of vegetarianism, where I first had Morningstar Farms brand uh, meat alternatives. <laughs> they had a pet rabbit that kind of roamed freely throughout their kitchen. They listened to Bob Dylan records. They probably smoked weed, which I just wasn't aware of at the time. Um, and the kids called their parents by their first names rather than mom and dad. So, you know, introduced to a lot of great things there. As we've talked about on the podcast before, I was also introduced to English style tea. I was introduced to reading aloud from a book together as a family. Um, I first read The Hobbit there that way and <clears throat> was exposed to The Lord of the Rings and all sorts of great things came from my friendship with Guillen and my association with his family. And they were by no means perfect and had their own issues like any family does, but those are all some really great memories. So for me, the vegetarian thing was as simple as I asked him one day why he didn't eat meat. I'd offered him some bologna from the refrigerator at my house. And he said, because I don't think we should kill animals for food. We don't have to, so we shouldn't do it. And for 11-year-old me, it was that simple. It immediately clicked. And I, without having any concept of the the pro-vegetarian and vegan arguments in terms of environmentalism and world health and nutrition and, you know, this wide swath of different rationales for adopting that diet, just the animal issue was enough for me in the beginning. And I remember telling my dad that I was vegetarian and him, you know, dismissing it. And, and uh, as I, I believe I've told the story on the podcast before as well, but hello, new listeners quickly. Uh, it was during a period where the McRib was back and my dad uh, went to McDonald's, bought McDonald's for all of us, sat me down at the dinner table and said, you're not getting up until you eat your dinner. And to his eternal credit, I sat there however long, you know, felt like hours to me at the time, but it was probably 30 minutes or something. And my dad just kind of comes by the table and is like, so you're serious about this? And I was like, yeah. And he was like, okay. And aside from cracking jokes about it, uh, never fought to discourage me from it ever again. This was like, all right, you're a vegetarian. That, you know, again, in the mid eighties and late eighties, in Indiana, of all places, an agricultural state and so forth, uh, a red state for the most part, <clears throat> no pun intended. And, you know, it was, it, it often, much like my interest in music and horror and comics and everything else, 
made me subject to ridicule. And there's some satisfaction in seeing how all of those things I just mentioned are much more widely accepted and in many ways celebrated these days. Uh, but it was, I wasn't doing myself any favors socially <laughs> by telling people I didn't eat meat. <clears throat> now, I was, it didn't, you know, it was a real speak when spoken to thing for me uh, in elementary school and middle school. It didn't come up unless someone else brought it up. Um, and it was around, you know, it was around 1989, 1990, when I became aware and, and I started discovering hardcore music that there were people like John Joseph from the Cro-Mags and Ray Capo from Youth of Today that were vegetarian and were talking about it in their music. And that was a, a very nice sort of point of connection for me of like, oh, wow, this is, you know, there's some like-minded folks out there. Uh, this isn't just this isolated, weird thing that's just me and, <laughs> you know, my one friend who moved away. So that was gratifying. And then through the pages of Maximum Rock and Roll fanzine, where so many important things in my life uh, spawned from, relationships and friendships with people that persist to this day that began in the classified section of MRR, I saw an ad for a band called Vegan Reich. And the name immediately struck me as extreme and kind of awesome. And as I would come to learn, Vegan Reich was a punk band in Southern California that came developed in the anarchist scene. And because of their militant attitude about veganism, people in the greater punk scene at large would call them fascists and uh, Nazis. And of course they weren't anything of the sort. In fact, for the majority of the band's duration, more members than not in the band were people of color. And they were, you know, they came from this radical politics, anarchist background and had a foot in reggae and were, you know, kind of, uh, you know, they were a few years after the bad brains, but were very much coming from that place and, you know, were informed as much by, you know, uh, black nationalist movements and, you know, like move and other groups that had adopted veganism as they were anything else. Uh, they adopted the name Vegan Reich sarcastically as this sort of counteroffensive that was like, oh, you, you think we're fascists because we care so much about animals and the environment? Uh, we're going we're gonna to take this attitude and, and turn it around against you. So as someone who was into punk and metal and everything else, I was very intrigued and excited by this idea as I'm reading about it in the, the pre-internet social media days in fanzines of this group that were outcasts among the outcasts, you know, something I've, I've always been drawn to and continue to be drawn to, uh, you know, as much as I loved Metallica, I loved the Dave Mustaine story of being the, the underdog fired from Metallica, who's formed a new band that's faster and more technical and more pissed off to get revenge. You know, I've always been, um, inspired by <laughs> those types of, of tales and personalities. So, that made Vegan Reich intriguing to me. So I wrote a letter, which is what you did back then, a snail mail letter to the P.O. box listed in the ad for Vegan Reich, who at that time hadn't released anything other than a song on an anarchist compilation. 
and started corresponding uh, <laughs> with uh, a guy named Sean, who was the band leader of Vegan Reich, who uh, continues to be one of my closest friends here in 2019. And this was back in like 89 or 90. And around this time, you know, I was playing in my first crossover bands and then hardcore bands and meeting other vegetarians or convincing friends, you know, persuading them to go vegetarian. And yeah, I went vegan um, in 1990. You know, we, we've talked about this on the podcast before, but there were groups of people kind of like the vegan rec experience in the larger punk scene on the local level. I found that ideas like straight edge and vegetarianism that I thought were all about positivity and unity and, and, uh, you know, very optimistic minded were really frowned upon in punk and, and people, you know, as much as I was bullied in the wider culture, I found myself bullied in the subculture for adopting those ideas. And, and mind you, by no means militant about them. It was in fact being bullied about them where, you know, that is what birthed the militant attitude. And, you know, that's how my, my early hardcore straight edge, hardcore band that was vegetarian and drug free and friendly and all about unity clear sight and getting bullied by other bands at our one and only show that led to the creation of our new band hardball, which was a militant straight edge vegetarian and, and eventually vegan minded band. Um, and we were, our band was forming and developing around the same time as Raid, a band from Memphis that had a similar trajectory where they had come from the straight edge hardcore scene and had uh, become more and more militant and got in contact with Vegan Reich. And, you know, this kind of movement at the time that was called Hardline started to form. And it was from Hardline that what we now know as Vegan Straight Edge, in fact, uh, Rat, who was one of the early, this guy in England, who was one of the early uh, kind of architects of the hardline thing, uh, I believe is the first person to coin the phrase vegan straight edge. And that's where, you know, uh, bands like Earth Crisis and things like that started to develop. And a lot, most of those characters were coming from a more sort of, uh, and, and Raid also, were coming from a more suburban uh judeo-christian sort of place where you know foundationally conservative so raid and earth crisis well raid and then earth crisis were sort of spinning off of this budding they were vegan straight edge thing and, and without getting caught in the weeds and without pointing fingers anywhere uh because this this could this is like, you know, sub of a sub of a sub thread for some other venue. But I, I, I do think it's important to sort of quickly describe that the initial formation of this hardline idea and of, you know, these anarchist punks in California, you know, connecting with an anarchist punk hunt and fur farm saboteur group of people in England and all these dots kind of getting connected in the late eighties and early nineties. It was coming from a place that was drawing from Buddhism and uh, Rastafarianism and liberation theology in, in Latin America and black nationalist movements and, uh, you know, black Panthers and a whole 
host of more sort of holistically and spiritually minded activist organizations. And through the prism of the punk scene, which was at that time extremely liberal and way ahead of the curve on a, a number of issues, uh, the hardline movement quickly developed a strain of conservatism, which I would argue was brought in by uh, folks who were raised in more sort of conservative backgrounds and when it was easier for them to sort of transition from their upbringing into this hardline thing and then later the vegan straight edge thing and bring some of that baggage with them for better or worse. Now, I wouldn't paint, you know, I know the guys in Earth Crisis very well and very and personally and have for a number of years. I wouldn't paint them with that brush uh, necessarily, but I would make the distinction between those early anarchists slash ital veganism roots of the thing and what it later became and is, and is of course much more remembered for for better or worse uh in the annals of punk history but in terms of my personal development you know there was a couple of years where all that stuff was really important to me and i was really engaged in it and communicating with a lot of those people around the country and around the world and developing some of these ideas and printing fanzines and making flyers and leaflets and and really taking a much more activist oriented bent towards animal rights. And by this time, you know, I had read books like Diet for a New America, which much like Howard Zinn's People's History of the United States was was very uh, formative in shaping my worldview at the time. And I became much more aware of the multiple arguments for a vegan diet and lifestyle that extend beyond animal murder. <laughs> so, you know, it, regardless of one's take on whether or not animals should be quote unquote harvested for food, there's a massive impact on the environment, on our water use, on pollution, on climate change, and a lot of things that I was learning about that were related to animal agriculture, and in particular factory farming, uh, a lot of things were tied into neocolonialism, you know, going into underdeveloped areas and handing out, you know, Nestle uh, dairy-based breastfeeding stuff that, you know, and getting getting people hooked on it rather than mother's milk. And then, you know, it just there's a whole, you can really get in the weeds about a lot of fucked up things that are tied into the meat and dairy and, and egg based animal agriculture industry. You know, I really started to see that as a defining, you know, almost, I would say, I guess, prioritized component of my worldview. Um, I really started to see that as the most important issue because I felt that so many other issues from systemic racism to any number of things kind of stemmed from that same central thesis of kindness and respect and justice. And uh, by the way, a lot of high minded ideas that certainly weren't being practiced by my friends and I in everyday life <laughs> to the extent that uh, that one would hope. But, you know, also giving us a pass that we were, you know, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20, 21 in that era. And, uh, you know, the time, place and circumstance of the scene within a scene that we operated in.
but yeah, so that eventually led to my f- participation in more sort of mainstreamed animal rights organizations that weren't involved in punk and hardcore and weren't tackling other issues outside of of animal rights. I was, you know, going into the mid '90s even, and this episode being called Fur Free Friday. That's a day, the day after Thanksgiving, typically, where during you know Black Friday, when all the holiday shopping is is in full force, animal activists going to uh, retailers that sell fur. Fur was sort of the gateway drug into the animal rights movement for a lot of people because it's so. I mean, there's no argument for a fur coat. <laughs> like you don't no no one needs one in 2019. Uh, and the animals are, uh, I mean, the, the abuse that happens on fur farms and the actual means of execution, which is anything from stomping on the animals to anally electrocuting them, you know, and on down the list of all these horrific ways that these animals are killed and turned into fur coats. It's a, it's a needless luxury item. And it made for a nice sort of baseline where it's like, look, if you're not in a position in your life where you're comfortable giving up eating meat or wearing leather or avoiding products that are needlessly tested on animals, at the very least, you can be against fur. (laughs) And that was kind of a a hook where, uh, you know, animal activists would seek to bridge the gap between the more, quote unquote, extremist view and a more mainstream view. So for Free Friday, you know, I was 19, 20 years old going on the radio in places like Atlanta and and at home in Indianapolis and talking about for Free Friday, representing organizations like uh, the Coalition to Abolish the Fur Trade and, you know, working with a lot of great activist people who who eventually went on to, you know, one of the the guy who actually started Coalition to Abolish the Fur Fur Trade, who came from the anarchist punk movement and was involved in Memphis Hardline. Uh, not coming from the straight edge point where a lot of the other Memphis hardliners had. He's now, um, you know, a lobbyist for the Humane Society, I believe, and has done a lot of work as an adult to uh, enact legislation that has benefited animals. So all of that being said, I was vegan from age 16 to age 30. So that was, you know, 1989 or 90 up until about 2003, 2004. And honestly, what happened, uh, I started dabbling in eggs and dairy. And I have no rationale for it. I have no argument. I had, you know, vegans I was friends with at the time who would, who would make it their mission to try to argue me back into veganism. And I would just kind of, you know immediately surrender and say, you're right, you're right, you're right. And, and much like a conversation we had in a different episode about mental health and fitness and all sorts of things that we know are good for us and that we believe in, it's not always that easy to practice what you preach. And for me, I, I went from this point where it was like, you know, for years and years and years, straight edge, was vegan, uh, was avoiding casual sex, was, you know, had all these rules and limitations and boundaries I'd put on myself, uh, all well intended, but I just kind of got into this point in my adult life around turning 30 where I was like, man, something's got to give. And I don't want to start, I don't want to start drinking or smoking or doing things that everyone's trying to quit when they're 30. Um, 
but I just I need to relax somewhere. And the the point that I chose to relax was going to a restaurant and being served a bowl of bread and having to say, um, can you can I see the ingredients for the bag that this <laughs> bread came out of? That was literally it was as simple as that. I didn't want to read ingredients anymore. Um, I've yeah. always been vegetarian. I've never backslid on being vegetarian since I was uh, literally 11 years old. But uh, but yeah, I did start doing dairy and eggs there for a period of, I don't know how many years, um, almost 10 years probably, uh, and then rededicated myself to veganism, I guess maybe three or four years ago. Um, and I would say, uh, you know, I'm, I'm plant-based and I'm not so orthodox, but I, you know, I am vegan and I'm straight. It's definitely straight edge. You know, this is a whole other conversation, but I had a beer and a half and a wine cooler during a two week period when I was 20. This is where we get into orthodoxy also, where <laughs> we'll have an entire hour where we talk about absurd, uh, ideological orthodoxy. Yeah. Suffice it to say that, that now at age 46, by the time people are listening to this, 26 years since that beer and a half in a wine cooler, there are adults in my life now, currently, who are uncomfortable with me identifying myself as straight edge because they feel that I abdicated the right to do that with a beer and a half in a wine cooler 26 years ago. And I'm not talking about like weird haters that you and I both know. I mean, people that I know, you know, a guy, <laughs> I got a straight edge tattoo on my hand on my 44th birthday a couple years ago and posted it on Instagram. And uh, a friend of mine in here in Orange County, who's, I believe, uh, he's close enough to me in age, he might be 40 by now. He's a lawyer, uh, a successful professional, intelligent, reasonable person. He posted the like, hmm, um, the skeptical emoji. <laughs> and uh, of, of, of course, rather than me, you know, feeling gratified by the hundred plus comments or likes and comments and everything of everyone patting me on the back for my cool new straight edge tattoo, um, I was obsessed with the one person who posted the skeptical emoji and, you know, found myself texting with him at 6 a.m. the morning after my birthday. And him going, well, aren't you a redo? You're a re-edge. I'm sorry, man. That's just like not straight edge. And I'm like, dude. That's that's codependency. <laughs> I didn't, yeah, it, right? I, I didn't even get drunk. <laughs> I had a beer and a half and a wine cooler 26 years ago. And people who are, you know, celebrating straight edge birthdays of like 15 years of straight edge. But yeah, you're right. It, it is codependency and it's ridiculous. And I can laugh about it now. But uh, I was upset by, by for a few days, like still like, you know. I got to run down every single person. And then I did an interview for uh, a guy did a book about straight edge a few years ago. And a lot of my friends and contemporaries have, were interviewed. And um, I did an interview and I was very honest. And I said essentially everything that I just did. And the, in the dude, I shit you not put me in the sellout chapter. <laughs> there's a, there's a, there's a chapter in the end. that's like life after straight edge. And I'm fucking in there. I'm like, are you kidding me? <laughs> 26 years now, this quote unquote second time, like, you know, the idea that you're supposed to be making a lifetime commitment at age 15 is fucking ludicrous. But, uh, but yeah, that's a whole other episode, but bringing it, bringing us back around to fur free Friday and animal rights, like we're talking about, that's been sort of my journey with it. And, you know, I'm, it, it has certainly been years, years since, you know, that, that phase of militants, 
was literally like six age 16 or 17 to like 19 or 20. And, you know, I, I carried that baggage around of feeling like I was perceived as the militant vegan guy for what in retrospect was really a very short period of actually being that person that, you know, ran into a friend for the first time in a week or two and said, so are you vegan yet? Like I would start conversations like that. <laughs> and that, that took, that took a long time to live down. Frankly, it took longer yeah. to live down than it did to establish that relationship in the first place or that reputation rather in the first place. Um, oh yeah. So yeah, so that's my story and brings us up to now. And certainly as I like to tell vegans, when I encounter them now, uh, being vegan in Orange County, California in 2019 versus being vegan in Indiana in 1990. Oof. It's, uh, yeah, it's about the easiest thing imaginable now here. And, you know, and there's a lot of talk about meat alternatives. And I should point out, as I know, a lot of vegans who might be listening would are probably pulling their hair out or crashing their car right now, wanting me or you to say, <clears throat> being vegan is by no means dependent on having meat alternatives, quote unquote. Um, you know, there's certainly a, a plant-based holistic dietary lifestyle where you get all the protein you need and all the B12 you need and all the things that, that people, you know, the calcium and the things that people are worried it's, they won't it get. It speaks more to the, it speaks more to the effort being made to make people comfortable with the idea of not yeah. eating meat. Yeah. I mean, there's a Burger King commercial airing currently for the impossible Whopper, where they're handing it to construction workers, like actual man on the street. Yeah. I'm a construction worker. I'm wearing the vest <laughs> where they're like, I only eat beef. Cause why wouldn't I eat beef? And then they take a bite and they're like, I can't tell the difference. And yeah, that's certainly an angle. And there's, there's an argument amongst the vegan orthodoxy right now that the impossible burger, which is super popular right now in mainstream society, isn't vegan because at one, <laughs> one point during its, uh, one point during its developmental process, it was tested on animals, which <coughs> seems so fucking stupid for whoever was in charge of that to have done. That's uh, hilarious. And now to be, you know, that small. And I, I had a vegan tell me, oh, well, it was only 10 rats and none of them died. I mean, you know, the, the, ba <laughs> the, the back foot people, people will go through to either deprive themselves of something or allow themselves something, you know, the ideological... The somersaults the jokes are. don't even have to write themselves no. like it's just the joke yeah and knowing what that sounds like to people who were i mean you at least lived in this culture even if you're not in it anymore knowing what this must sound like to the outline outside world and how it's kind of a relief actually to think about how fucking comical and stupid it sounds is it a good thing that little caesars has fake sausage that there's an impossible whopper that carl's jr and Del Taco and all these places are, are trying, you know, some form of beyond meat or impossible, you know, should we be supporting those places in their efforts to transition towards more plant-based foods or should we be boycotting them outright because of the terrible conditions for workers and, you know, the fact that they are still meat dependent businesses and, you know, and then you get your, your Twitter commies as you once referred to them who, you know, are all about smashing capitalism, uh, Shouldn't they be, you know, eating from their own garden? You know, you can really go down the rabbit hole, but to, uh, right. to tighten it up for us here. Yeah. That, that's been my journey with it. And I am still, uh, an advocate for animals. I still believe that a plant-based diet is the best for a human being from a health perspective and, and more importantly, best 
for the planet from the standpoint of animal welfare and their right to live freely and without, you know, molestation from humanity. And in terms of the planet and the climate crisis that we hear more and more about, that folks like you and I were ringing the alarm bells, you know, in the late 80s and early 90s. And we're hearing more and more about now. And in that in that sense, you know, as my friend Drew Pierce and I like to say, when quoting the great House of Pain, I'm the same motherfucker that I ever was. You know, I still <laughs> I still believe in the vegan straight edge lifestyle as much as I have at any point in my life. It just, you know, as a, as a middle aged parent, uh, it it manifests itself a lot differently than as a teenage activist. But the the principles and the the overall rationale and ideas uh, driving those things have have stayed the same. So same motherfucker that I ever was is actually a real great place to hop over to tell my story mm-hmm. because it ends, I guess it comes up to the present in a very different, but also very similar place. Uh, so being younger than you, I got into things later and I was being introduced to vegetarianism as a component of hardcore as a result of probably as a result of earth crisis taking over that uh, taking the torch from vegan reich and raid uh, and popularizing the concept of vegan straight edge uh, i wasn't fully aware of it but the ripples i would say the ripples of the all-out war seven inch hit me before i heard the band I had been getting into hardcore, but this was during my my phase of like 92 to 94 where I didn't quite know what I was getting into. I just knew that there was something there and it was adjacent to everything else I was into. So we're talking about, you know, me listening to Pantera and Agnostic Front uh, simultaneously and listening to uh, Metallica and split lip and knowing that there was a difference, but not really being super savvy about what it was. So my first, my first awakenings, I guess, to it were through hardcore and it was a little bit Krishna tinged because of the whole Cro-Mags shelter then 108 influence, but also it was the, sort of quasi-conservative extremist bent of Earth Crisis back then. Um, and the, I think it's significant that the first real, like, I guess, hardcore, my first true introduction to hardcore, my gateway was the Voice of the Voiceless comp, uh, dubbed onto a cassette for me. Uh, Poor, murder con- with a knife and fork. Knife and fork, chicken, death, death ain't finger, finger licking. Stop poisoning yourself with um, beef, chief. <laughs> this goes out to my homeboy, Guav. And it was like five years before I knew what the hell that meant, which is hilarious. Um, who is a homeboy and why is he Guav? Um, <laughs> <laughs> like, what is a Guav? I, how is a 13-year-old kid going to know what the hell that means? Um, so 
so the the concept of animal rights being a part of hardcore to me like that that was a package deal like once i got into it i was like oh if you're into hardcore you're straight edge and vegetarian at least and probably vegan and later i learned that, that was very specific to indianapolis that a significant portion of the hardcore scene was was vegan straight edge but uh so i was coming into it as as the sort of um leftist hippie vegetarian for spiritual reasons version of the scene was uh phasing out and getting into uh alt country and indie rock and the younger kids were coming at it from the angle of uh you know being spiritually ascetic teetotalers abstaining from sex vegan straight edge, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So I guess I was, I, I'm the firestorm generation. Um, that was, that was the, the, the point where it like all clicked for me when the firestorm seven inch was, was out and they were in between that and the release of destroy the machine. So like from, from firestorm to destroy the machines, that like two year period was when I became locked into animal rights thinking, I guess, and, and going vegan. And, uh, so, you know, I'm 14, 15, I'm reading animal liberation. I'm reading diet for new America. And it really, it really made my need for control and superiority sing. Like it just really, like it vibrated at that, at that frequency where like, I needed to be right. I needed something concrete. Like I was a fundamentalist waiting to find the thing that I was a fundamentalist about. I was a true believer without anything to believe in. And veganism was, you know, a big component of that thing. <clears throat> and like you were talking about it, it was, there were intersections with, misogyny with colonialism with environmentalism like it just seemed like this magic key that sort of unlocked everything and of course it wasn't but it was easy for a young teenage kid to think that way um and i pretty quickly got into organizing and activism so by the time by the time i was playing bass in birthright which was a vegan straight edge band uh i was organizing protests and publishing material on behalf of animal defense league, <clears throat> which was an animal rights group that I think came out of the hardcore scene itself. It wasn't exclusive to hardcore kids, but it was, it was, I think based in Syracuse, um, uh, over the years. And I, it's been a long time since then, but basically it was like, you remember like pedo, we thought PETA was bullshit. Like that was, they were, they were a weak, lame lobbying organization and we were down for real change, uh, not for making people feel comfortable with anything. So, um, and PETA was also you know, celebrity obsessed and sensationalistic and did a lot of, uh, stunts that would embarrass some of us more seriously minded activists. Yeah. And like we were in the weird space where, you know, I'd be 16, 17 and I would have like, like gender critiques of PETA campaigns, you know, where like, like where your issue is, you know, stop objectifying women 
in pursuit of getting people to agree with your, you know, this position that's actually good. So, so I guess I was, I was vegan from 15 until I had my first nervous breakdown in place to call back to an earlier episode this season. Um, when I decided that being vegan was tied in with my desire to have control over myself, to have control of others, my, my need to judge others, uh, my need to feel superior, like all that stuff was, was being expressed through these politics that I thought were objectively good. Um, so I stopped being vegetarian, um, pretty quickly. Like it was, it was almost an overnight thing. Uh, after I got on antidepressants, I woke up one day and decided that it just wasn't what I wanted to do anymore. Um, and we, you and I have t- used this concept for a long time, but it, a lot of it was the rubber band snapping back. You know, you put yourself under this pressure for so long, even if intellectually you still agree with something. It's like, I just, I, I can't anymore. Like I literally cannot care about this thing anymore because I've spent so much fucking time caring about it to the detriment of myself and everyone else around me. And I had a lot of complicated feelings about having spent a long time trying to do things I thought were good, but being a shithead in the process and hurting people's feelings and just not feeling like I had actually accomplished good uh, in the in the pursuit of doing it, so uh, you know, I guess the apex the apex of my of my involvement was you know was on a fur free Friday when when I and like a half a dozen other people uh, got arrested at a protest. But like you, I think my most extreme period was like that seventeen to twenty range where. You know, everyone thinks they know everything, and uh, our our teenage arrogance or hubris was just you know weaponized for for animal rights instead of something less productive or or unhealthier. Um, but the interesting thing is is that over over the years, you know, like everything that we got into when we were kids, it never fully gets out of you once it's once it's in, you know, when, <clears throat> when, when something is embedded in you at an early age, it never really works its way out. And over the last, you know, decade, I've been reincorporating the stuff that I kind of always felt intellectually or, or always thought was, was correct. Um, or, or the way I wanted to do things. I've been incorporating things back into my lifestyle, my, my decisions. And I've always been, I've been a supporter of, you know, like local and sustainable agriculture even since I stopped being vegan. Um, and I've had the opportunity recently to go to work for an organization that essentially advocates for all the stuff that I was into back then. The only difference is that I don't believe that killing an animal or harvesting an animal to eat it and use its body for things is morally objectionable. I still believe in animal welfare. And strangely enough, my client sits on the 
advisory board for the National Humane Society um, as a voice for for farmers. Um, but I still believe in environmental sustainability. I still believe in reducing the carbon footprint. I still believe in uh, caring for the earth and everything on it. But I've discovered uh, a movement of people who do all of that. They just happen to eat meat. Uh, and they are practicing agricultural methods that actually uh, counteract the effect of industrial agriculture. So I guess my what's changed is my analysis uh, of the problem, which is, it used to be, you know, the quote-unquote meat and dairy industry, and now my analysis as a 40-year-old is that industrial agriculture and and modern capitalism are the problem. If you change the way <clears throat> you produce things, you get different outcomes. You get different outputs. So, um, so yeah, the same motherfucker I always was uh, – I'm, I'm back, I guess. Um, I'm back to advocating for a lot of the same stuff that I did when I was an 18-year-old. Um, different. Um, not the same guy. Not the same approach. But the same ultimate goal, which is to increase the amount of good in the world. And I think now maybe I have the emotional skills uh, to be able to do that. I want to go way back for a second only because I think people who <clears throat> might be unfamiliar with this whole uh, parallel universe we're talking about, tell a little bit about the story of getting arrested on Fur Free Friday. <laughs> so Fur Free, Fur Free Friday was, like we said earlier, it was a planned nationwide protest for Black Friday, and the goal was to disrupt fur retailers on the biggest shopping day of the year. Um, so the group that I was involved with, ADL, uh, we planned a protest, and the goal of it was to shut down the intersection <coughs> excuse me, on 82nd Street in Indianapolis that leads into Castleton Square Mall, which... At that point, and probably still, was the most highly trafficked mall in central Indiana. Uh, and we were there, I can't remember if it was Macy's or one of the other. Basically, we were there to to, pro, to pro, protest one of the big retailers that still sold fur and fur trim. Um, Lazarus was, I just remembered Lazarus existed. Lazarus was, was the, the target of, of a lot of our protests. Um, so, you know, we, we planned it, we rehearsed it. Uh, I was still 17 then. So there was a focus on, um, there was a focus on getting those of us who were still juveniles arrested because we knew that the consequences would be minimal. Um, and the, what we talked about in advance was to, reject plea agreements uh, as a way to generate more controversy, attention, et cetera, et cetera. So there were, I don't know, four or five of us maybe who uh, laid down in the middle of the intersection 
um, on Fur Free Friday and used uh, bicycle U-bolt locks uh, to lock our necks together, sort of in an octopus. There was like a couple locks in the center, and then there was a there were spokes that went out, and we all just laid there, kind of with our heads in the in the center of it, uh, and then there were people on the outside, you know, on the the sides of the streets, you know, holding up signs and protesting. And it was a, <clears throat> always, um, it, and interestingly, it was our way of telling other people to eat shit. Um, so, so yeah, so that was, that was my, that was my contribution to the chaos on Fur Free Friday. Um, I s- spent a couple of hours on the street uh, with some friends and acquaintances. Uh, the Indianapolis Metropolitan Police Department uh, had to drill holes in the locks to get them to come apart. Um, uh, we were arrested. I was taken to juvie for an afternoon. Um, I ended up, I ended up taking a, a plea agreement uh, for various complicated reasons. Uh, I think most everyone else did. And here's where I can't remember if this is where, if this was the protest that ended up with Tony Wong being uh, being incarcerated for quite a while and being on hunger strike. I can't remember if it was the same one or if it was a different protest, but um, yeah, it was, it was a thing. It was an interesting experience. Um, And someone making a sign that said you got the Wong kid. (laughs) Yeah. I'd have to go back into the archives and, and pull all that stuff out. But yeah, I mean, like you said, you did TV and, and different media, like, Throughout throughout my junior and senior year of, of high school, I was doing interviews with TV stations and, and newspapers locally talking about veganism and talking about activism and um, I guess being a, a public face of that. And it took me – it took me a long time to unwind that – persona like you were talking about to like to not be the guy who other people thought were going to give them some sort of guilt trip about whatever um but yeah it it goes back to that that like first episode we did you know uh, about being in a band and not wanting to talk about it like for a long time i didn't want to talk about my activism because I felt like I was just, I had been an obnoxious prick. Um, and I didn't know how to reconcile it with who I had become as an adult. Not that I was necessarily ashamed of having believed something strongly or taken action, uh, you know, as a as a citizen, as an informed citizen, I was proud of that. It was just, um, I just felt like I'd been a caricature of a person, and didn't want to be constantly reminded of that. Um, I was talking with Ryan Patterson once about 
how pre-internet hardcore kids had a record of their young lives that very few other people did because we were documenting what we what we believed and what we did you know on vinyl and in fanzines and you know we were taking photos of each other and so there's this like record of who you were as a 13 14 15 16 year old that is different maybe than other people had before before the internet, you know, I, and I know people, other people had photo albums, but there's, there's something different about the way we documented and what we were doing, you know, like, uh, not, not everybody was coming back to English class on Monday and saying that they hadn't gone to the basketball game that Saturday because they'd been at an exotic animal, animal sanctuary, you know, volunteering that weekend instead, you know, or, uh, you know, what did you do on, on Black Friday? Well, I got arrested and spent the day at Juvie. You know, like, that's it was just such a different young life to be leading um, that I just didn't want to talk about it at a certain point, you know. I, I stopped wanting to be a caricature. Well, I guess it's kind of a moot point now. I was actually just going to say something about how the type of activism you were doing on For a Free Friday was, you know, civil disobedience like it's a when you say you got arrested it was a planned arrest yeah the whole point being to yeah the the plan going in was to get arrested for disrupting traffic and to to create media attention which is you know it at this point it's old hat you know like groups of all different kinds are doing that kind of stuff now with the added element of manipulating scenarios so that they can create media to share on Twitter, Facebook, et cetera, YouTube, uh, to advance whatever agenda they're advancing. But it was, uh, it was a super important era of my life and I'm glad I did it. I learned quite a bit. It just took me a long time to get comfortable with, with that era, who I was and how I behaved.